Welcome to Harvest Talk, the podcast of Harvest Community Church in Goshen, Indiana. Harvest is a community church with a vision to change the world, and we do that by reaching people and building their lives. For more information on Harvest Community Church, please check out our website, hccgoshen.org. And as always, I'm Pastor Jeremy, and it is an honor to be with you today, and I hope you're having a great uh, week this week. Um, I am. I actually don't even know when this one will be releasing. I am pre-recording this a little bit ahead of time. Um, but just a couple of things before we wrap up our Just War Part 3 uh, podcast. Uh, a couple of things I just want to share with everyone. Uh, first of all, um, I, we've announced this a couple of times to our congregation, but over this summer, I'm going to be taking a sabbatical. And so uh, this is something that we do as a church every seven years. We give our staff pastors uh, a sabbatical. And so I'm going to be gone for about 12 weeks uh, from harvest and uh, kind of spending some time just getting renewed, refreshed, uh, getting some uh, just some mental, emotional space back, uh, spending some extra time with family, as well as some time just seeking God uh, for the new, for the vision of the church. And so that's kind of what's going to be going on over the summer, uh, this summer. However, what I do want to do is we actually are going to continue the podcast. And so what's going to be happening over the summer is I'm going to be doing something that I did actually back during the shutdown with COVID. Uh, when COVID first shut down, we weren't quite sure what to do, and we wanted to find ways to connect with people and 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 provide opportunities uh, for biblical study and for them to hear a pastoral voice. And so we did something that I actually stole from another pastor, an idea that I told, stole from another pastor, which which was called Secret Church. And uh, so the way we did Secret Church was basically this. Uh, I believe it was like a Wednesday night at 6 or 7 o'clock, something like that. Um, basically, people uh, logged into Facebook Live. I just was, It was just me opening up a Bible, and we were kind of talking about mimicking, if you will, the fact that so, so many places around the world, they are not allowed to meet in public, so they'd meet in secret, they'd meet in the dark, and usually all they had is a gathering of people and someone with a Bible. And so we took the Sermon on the Mount, actually. And I just spent at that point in time, I spent about an hour just opening up the Sermon on the Mount and just going through verse by verse. And we did five or six of them uh, as part of that time until it started to open back up and we were able to start to figure out how to move back into uh, what normal Bible studies and gatherings and worship would look like. And so what I'm actually going to do this summer is do the same concept. We're going to do a secret church Bible study in one of my favorite books, the book of Philippians. And so what will happen is we will jump in on our our podcast and I'll probably elongate the podcast for about a half an hour. And uh, so I'll be gone for uh, 12 weeks. So basically I'll start this uh, one of the podcasts in May, and we'll go every other week, uh, May, June, July, August, and then I'll resume with the new series uh, sometime in, the, in September, uh, be wrapping that up um, in that case. And so we're just going to be doing, uh, again, a verse-by-verse Bible study through the book of Philippians. Um, I like the English Standard Version, what I typically use, so that's probably what I'll be using. And so you're welcome to join in just listening however you normally listen. Or if you wanted to do a little bit more formal uh, study over the summer, uh, you can just simply grab your Bible and a, and a journal and follow along with us. Or the other thing you can do is actually a couple of years ago, uh, our youth pastor asked me to write a book about how to read the Bible that would be applicable for 
people just starting and youth and that kind of stuff. And so I self-published uh, this book, Grace and Truth, A Beginner's Guide to the Teaching of Grace, Bible Study in the Book of Philippians. Uh, it's on Amazon. It is a self-published book, so there are some typos and those kinds of things in it. However, it does just walk you through, uh, first of all, my philosophy on how to study Scripture, uh, as well as um, as as well as a uh, paragraph by paragraph guide uh, to the study of Philippians and a few places where I step out. Um, I, I think I call them. What do I call them? Um, not meditation moments. That's not it. Uh, grace points where I talk about different passages in the Scripture and apply a larger uh, theology of grace to those passages. And so I don't remember. It's, it's six seven bucks on. Amazon. And so, uh, yeah, so you can just order that grace and truth, pick it up, uh, 15 minutes a day. And this, uh, in between our studies would be enough, uh, to, uh, really enrich, hopefully enrich your walk with Jesus. And so that's where we're going, uh, starting next time today. What we are doing though, is wrapping up our series on just war. And again, just to kind of review where we've been, we've been looking at the conflict of Russia and Ukraine and how that's impacted our Western thinking of potential World War III for the first time really since the late 80s. Uh, just so you know, uh, this podcast is probably coming out three or four weeks after when I'm recording it. So I actually don't know currently where the situation of the war is. And so it might be a little bit dated in that aspect. But just simply the idea of how, does, how do people that are called to follow a gospel of peace navigate the issue of war and the issue of using force to protect a neighbor. And so we started off kind of basically surveying the scriptures. We said that there are two very clear principles that can be applied to this issue in, in scripture. The first is the idea of neighborly love, that we are called to love our enemies, but also protect our neighbor. And we've talked through aspects of the fact that there are times where, um, where uh, neighborly love dictates and loving our enemy dictates that we do not retaliate, particularly if we personally are being attacked for the sake of the gospel. But there also might be places where in an effort to protect our neighbor, using force to protect our neighbor could be an expression of brotherly love. Second is the sanctity of life, that all people, even our enemies, even people that do despicable things, are image bearers of God, and we need to value that image in their life. And so we surveyed Scripture, we talked about it, and basically we came to the conclusion that Scripture seems to say that there are some places where the use of force or even violence as an expression of, of neighborly love is permissible. But basically what that does is this. It can be used to prevent a victim from the harm of an attacker, but it should also be used to prevent too much harm from coming to the attacker. In other words, when we're fully expressing neighborly love in the right way, we're doing whatever we can to prevent harm from coming to a victim. And then using that force in a way to restrain the attacker to the point where we can still honor the image of God in them or in, in those entities. And that's that's what we what we need to need to strive for. Now, we then said, okay, if it's okay in some cases to use force and as an expression of neighborly love. How then do we make a decision to use force or make or go to war in those circumstances? So we talked about six criteria that um, people that use the just war theory follow based, again, on scriptural principle. The first one is, is there a legal uh, or legitimate authority? And we talked about the role of governments and peace treaties and those kinds of things uh, as legitimate authorities 
that can decide to go to war. At the same time, we said that just because a legitimate nation, for example, Russia, uh, decides to go to war does not necessarily mean that their decision is a just one. And so that brought us down to the second place, which is, is there a just cause to go to war? And we talked about there's three just causes that present themselves. Justice, in other words, um, the response to an injustice against us. We talked about Pearl Harbor as one. Mercy, the ability to enact mercy upon a, a population or, or, or citizens that are being attacked. We talked about the use of, of, of military force to extract uh, hostages uh, could be an example of mercy. Also protection. So when we're being attacked by another nation, there's a just cause to protect ourselves. After that, though, we go into the right intent. In other words, if a nation, uh, legitimate authority, has a just cause, is their intention in uh, actually matching their cause? Or are they trying to use a just cause to mask a different intention? We talked a little bit about the fact that, in one sense, what again, based on media reports that I've received at least a month prior to this uh, report, this broadcast, the media has led us to believe that what Russia is telling its own people is they are trying to protect uh, their Russian citizens in Ukraine from neo-Nazi uh, Ukrainians. And, and so that's what technically, in theory, that would be a just cause, protect the citizens out of mercy from evil people. The problem is, is that there's absolutely no evidence, again, according to our media, that there's any type of neo-Nazi movement in the Ukrainian uh, nation, particularly since their uh, since their president is partially Jewish, and uh, then their their actions of how they've invaded and attacked and kind of gone a whole war a whole a whole war strategy against Ukraine does not match the cause, and so their intention does not follow that cause. Number three, uh, number four, then is after if you've got a legitimate authority, a just cause, your intention matches that cause, you can use it as a last resort. Is there anything else we can do before violence is necessary? Then when we attack and we use a violence, we use it in proportionality to that which is being attacked against us. And so, in other words, we work hard. We'll talk more about this today to protect citizens and, and, and do those kinds of things. Last of all, is there a reasonable prospect for success? Okay, and we talked a little bit about the fact that at least until, until the time of this recording, uh, Russia has failed here. And, uh, and yet we also talked about in the defense of a nation like Ukraine, no one thought Ukraine had a chance of success. Uh, there is some leeway to sit there and go, and if a, a citizenry can make a decision between dying or living under such abusive authority that they would prefer to die. And so those are kinds of things. When you, when you look at look at these scriptural principles, these are the kind of things you work yourself through to go, okay, this is a just war, or this is an unjust war. And then we talked also about the matter of conscience, that maybe some of these things don't fit sit right with our spirit. And so we say, um, that you can have conscientious objectors that say this is not going to fit with my understanding of following Jesus. Okay, so let's say we get all the way to this point, this point, and then we're going to go to war. How then, in war, do we conduct ourselves in a way that would reflect Christian principles, our love for Jesus and our love for our neighbor and our love for our enemy? Okay, and these I, I'm just going to go ahead and tell all of you these are difficult and these are highly controversial. And, and so, I again, this is where the principle of grace and humility are very, very important. I've got a lot of people that are friends of mine that are either in or work with people in the military, and they will talk about how 
it's real easy for those of us who've never been in war, which I, I've never been, to get idealistic and not understand the situation on the ground. And so we've got to allow for that. Um, at the same time, we've got to allow for biblical truth and loving our enemy and all those kinds of things. And so these are going to be a little bit hard. This was the hardest part of the just war theory for me to work through because it challenged everything that I'd ever thought about war and those kinds of things. And so I think we just have to allow ourselves to be challenged, ask difficult questions, and provide for grace and conscience in each of these areas. So there are three guiding principles that people in the just war theory work with. Number one, your behavior, the behavior of the troops and the behavior in that war should be subject to legitimate authority. Now here's very, very important. Legitimate authority is not necessarily the rank, but actually moral authority, okay? In other words, this is, this is kind of how it, it fleshes itself out, okay? In other words, the best way to think about it is this way. The opposing army as an entity is the enemy. The individual soldier is an image bearer, okay? And so, yes... In the, in, the, in the circumstance in which, let's, let's just put it into the issue of Ukraine, a Christian soldier in the Ukrainian army can lower his gun and fire a weapon at members of the enemy Russian army in defense of his nation in a righteous way. Okay. But if that Ukrainian runs into an individual Russian even a former military person, particularly if they are, certainly if they are not an immediate threat, if they're not carrying a weapon or that kind of stuff, we're called to look at that individual soldier as an image bearer of Christ and an enemy we're supposed to love. You know, one of the most powerful examples of this, and I can't remember if it was World War I or World War II, I think it was World War I, where for a period of time, uh, the Axis and Allies power, the German and, and, and Allied powers, on Christmas Eve and into Christmas Day, declared a 24-hour ceasefire. And what happened is members from both armies came out of their trenches and celebrated Christmas together. And in those moments, uh, enemy warriors exchanged photographs and letters and stories and drinks and souvenirs with each other. And then at the end of the 24 hours, they went back into their trenches and started shooting at each other. And so it demonstrates that the way we look at an army is different than the way we look at the individual. Okay, now what does this, how does this apply itself in terms of subjection to legitimate authority? It means then that there are certain rights to individuals within the enemy army. There are certain rules within the individual army. There's certain ways of treating prisoners uh, within that army or even in engaging in them that are legitimate and not. Soldier surrenders, you're supposed to give them quarter. Uh, you, you, you arrest a soldier, you're supposed to treat them well. Uh, we should not torture individuals, uh, those kinds of things. And, and then what happens is, is you as a soldier should conduct yourself with legitimate authority. So in other words, if your commanding officer demands that you violate law in the image of God and somebody else, your conscience, you're, you're obligated by a Christian conscience to violate that order. This goes back to the Holocaust where we prosecuted prison guards in the Nazi army for human rights violations against the Jews, 
even though they were being ordered by superior officers. At some point in time, you step back and go, I'm sorry, this is not how you treat enemy, how you treat image bearers of God. I, that is an immoral command. Okay. And so that, that, that there's that. Now, again, I'm talking about, we'll get into a little bit the difference between rules of war and not rules of war, but if there's an immoral command, you don't, you don't do it. Number two, who may be attacked in a, in a war. Okay. And basically this gets down to the issue between what are known as enemy combatants, the participants in the war and non enemy combatants, people that do not are not directly involved in the war effort. And so people like uniformed soldiers, people, uh, who are involved in the supply line, people who are involved in the manufacturing of war, uh, war weaponry, that kind of thing, people that are supplying uh, enemy forces with weapons, those kind of things, those are what are known as enemy combatants. And so those are the ones that can be legitimately attacked. Non-enemy combatants are individuals that are not directly involved in the war effort, and they are not to be attacked. Unless, you know, they, they, are, they are considered what what would what you would call a a uh, secondary collateral damage okay and so in other words if the military is held out in the middle of the city like we see with Ukraine and you are attacking the known enemy strongholds in in a city okay where the army is held up so let's say you drop a bomb on that city or not on that city but on that enemy stronghold within the city that you can verify their enemy soldiers in that stronghold the bomb explodes and at the same time at the time there happened to be a family walking down the street when the bomb went off those non-enemy combatants are kind of what we call passive casualties of war they were not being targeted they happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and so that is not an immoral act because you are targeting legitimate uh, target with well, targeting legitimate um, military uh, uh, target. Okay, so you can attack legitimate military targets, legitimate forces, and understand that there is going to be secondary damage that happens that is, that is tragic, but not necessarily intentionally immoral now where it does draw a line is when you target non-enemy combatants and so in other words you go out of your way to disc to not worry about citizens and so just carpet bombing a city kind of what we've actually seen with uh the russians so far is they've taken out apartment complexes they've taken out uh theaters where children were hiding those kind of things those are immoral acts of war going after the families of soldiers violently when there's no proof that they're involved in it, those are the things. Uh, those are things where mass, you know, mass civilian bombings. Those are not people that are to be attacked. That's not loving your neighbor. Okay. Now I will say this: there is a small caveat here, which is sometimes we have to approach these issues with wisdom and grace. The way terrorism has changed warfare makes some of these issues very, very difficult. In that, oftentimes it is difficult for armed military personnel to distinguish between innocent civilian and potential terrorists because one of the terrorist tactics around the world is to use uh, innocent civilians or people that are dressed as innocent civilians as human bombs and those kinds of things. And so those are difficult situations and that's why we just need to be very, very careful in how we, uh, how we approach it. Um, 
certainly if we are prosecuting war crimes where it was an appearance of innocence when it may not have been. And so those are, again, the difficulties of war. The third thing that we should do try in, in an effort to conduct ourselves with brotherly love in the issue of war is proper conduct in war. In other words, this is kind of where proportionality of, of, of attack comes down to the soldier-by-soldier soldier level. In other words, when you're creating a strategy for how to attack the enemy, you don't adopt just a simple the ends justify the means approach. In other words, as long as it works, it's okay to do it. But that is tempered instead by the cost of innocent human life. And so, um, you know, again, for example, if you know the enemy is in the city, perhaps you choose not to just indiscriminately bomb the city. Um, if there's another way to take out the enemy, you try to figure out if you can do that. Your, 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 your tactics that could involve mass in the destruction of mass innocence are weight are held out to the last possible moment. Um, you know, honestly, this was something that I felt like the United States did well in the Iraq wars, where if we knew that we needed to take out a big factory that was supplying weapons to the enemy, but use civilians as the workforce, uh, instead of just treating those civilians as members of the war effort, we would try to choose a time to bomb the factory when the least number of people would be there. And so it was a representation that we were going to honor the guy that's just trying to, um, just trying to, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to work. Um, I, I remember one time when uh, they literally were taking out our strategic bridge and uh, they picked a time when there's very little traffic and the, the camera on the bomb that was dropped, you could see one truck driving across the bridge and we dropped the bomb and the truck had just gotten far enough out of range that when the bomb went off, I remember the, the warrior, the, the general going, that is the luckiest man in Iraq right now. And, uh, you know, and so taking an effort to avoid loss, unnecessary loss of innocence is part of this proper conduct in war. Now, here's the thing, and, and I'm only gonna touch this briefly just because it's such a debated issue in American history. At some point in time, when we talk, talk about proportionality, conduct in war, the issue of the nuclear bomb dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki comes up. And so should they have dropped the bomb? And usually the defense of this, uh, of this argument for dropping the bomb is it cost 300,000 Japanese lives and we would have lost a million soldiers, okay? Now here's the tricky ethical issues that I'm gonna walk down. Number one, uh, the million soldier number was a projection, not an actual number. And so it, you can make an argument that it doesn't necessarily fit the reality of proportionality. In other words, uh, Japan had not yet killed 300,000 Americans on, well, they hadn't killed 300,000 Americans, period. And so to retaliate in, in over 300,000 deaths doesn't fit that deal. Um, there's always the possibility that not a million people would have died. Doesn't fit that deal, okay? And so there, was a, there are a lot of people that look back on that decision to drop the bomb and say that it's an immoral decision by the United States to do that. Um, the other thing that they'll bring up is in one of the cities, I can't remember, the bomb was dropped or the target was actually a factory, and yet number 
yet there was a elementary school right next to the factory in which the bomb was dropped, plus the United States knew it was going to take out an entire city. Uh, the third thing is, is that there were a number of scientists that recommended that the bomb be dropped in an uninhabited location to demonstrate to the Japanese people the damage that it could do before it was dropped on a city. And the government decided not to do that, fearing that expediency was better. And so they just dropped it on a city. And so, so there's, there's all of these difficult moral dilemmas here, okay? And so here, here's, here's how I kind of adjudicated it. And this, again, was a very difficult decision uh, for me to try to figure it out. In fact, looking through my notes and going back in through the class that I studied, I actually wrote notes in there where I felt my, like my teacher was wrong on his approach to the, the dropping of the nuclear bomb. Kind of where I've come to the conclusion is this, is in today's context, understanding what we can do now with technology and war, the way we drop that bomb would be immoral, okay? There was no warning to innocent civilians. Uh, it cost the lives of innocent civilians. Um, and there were just steps we could have taken to warn before putting a million of our own troops in, in harm's way, potentially unnecessarily, okay? That being said, I actually think, looking back, and ascribing, I don't even know how to say it, ascribing evil and evil intentions to many of the people that made those decisions is problematic. Why is it problematic? Well, it, it's problematic in a couple of ways. Number one, we did not have smart weaponry back then, and carpet bombing cities was essentially an acceptable form of warfare. Uh, the Germans did it, the Japanese did it, the Allies did it. In fact, the reason we picked two of the cities that we picked is because those were two cities that had not been bombed yet, and we were curious what the bomb would do in a, in a city. And so we, we carpet bombed pretty much almost every other city. There were some cities we spared because of historical interest, but this was part of warfare a hundred years ago. Number two, um, the, the way that the Japanese thought was a whole all-out war way of fighting. And they would do things like put bombs on medics and send medics into the field and blow up enemy soldiers with medics. And they would pretend that their soldiers were injured, so our medics would come out, and then they would blow up the medics. I mean, it, there was a different mentality of war that actually had done a great deal of psychological war, psychological damage to our military in the in the uh, Far East. I remember uh, I watched uh, the Band of Brothers, which was about the German War side of World War II, and I loved it. Um, but it was European style. Uh, rules of war, generally speaking, uh, idea. And so I thought that the, um, the the Pacific version of Band of Brothers would be similar. And I watched it, and I, 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 I watched it, I owned it, and I'll only watch it once because the the psychological realities of what was going on in the war in, 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 in Asia was just so traumatizing. And so there, there could have been an argument for proportionality there. And so I just think it's very, you got to be very, very cautious 
on how you ascribe certain things back in that area of history. I hope that we never drop a nuclear war bomb ever again. I would love it if we could live in a war in a world where they didn't exist. Um, but I do think those are such last resorts that it is okay to call them last resorts. Okay. And so overall, when you engage in warfare, what you're trying to do is conduct it in such a way where once the, um, once the personhood of the individual emerges from the entity you're fighting, you're trying to honor it. And so innocent people, uh, you're trying to protect as much as possible. Individual soldiers, especially after they've surrendered, you're trying to protect as much as possible. And that's kind of the way in an ideal world we would fight a battle. Now, again, this is again a place where you need to extend grace, extend wisdom, because in instantaneous moments of life and death situations where people are trying to make decisions to save the people that they love, idealism is difficult to hold on to. And so that's again why I think the middle portion of the discussion is so important. Being careful how you get into those conflicts is so important because tragedy happens once the conflict begins. And I think that is a place where we as, as Christians can serve as a conscience to our nation, as a conscience to others, to identify these situations so that we are, we are careful to uphold the gospel of peace and careful to hold the image of man and careful to show mercy on those who do indeed deserve mercy. And so that's kind of the just war theory. Now, one really thing, one really thing I just want to point out to this, one of the reasons I like the just war theory is it actually is very helpful, I think, in interpreting Scripture. There are places in which Scripture is very, very clear, and then there's places in which the application of Scripture is, is, is a little bit difficult. And so that's why when we study Scripture, we want to bore down to the absolute truth that we can find, do our best to apply it in a way that honors Jesus, and then show grace and conscience in places where application might differ. And actually, that's part of what we are going to be looking at as we study the book of Philippians going forward. And so I hope you will check us out in the podcast, our secret church study of Philippians, starting at our next podcast. So let me pray for us. Thank you. I hope this uh, podcast on Just War has been helpful. And uh, thank you uh, for participating. And I look forward to jumping into Philippians next time. So let's just pray together. Lord God, we just first of all, thank you that you are a God who loves us and Lord loves us who because we were your enemy. And Lord, you showed mercy on us. So Lord, wherever we can, as followers of you, raise the value of loving our neighbor and raise the value of the image of God and do what we can to relieve suffering in the world, I ask that you would show it to us. I again ask that the where evil is sh- sh- showing its uh, head and warfare, that you would defeat that and that you'd bring mercy and grace in the places where the destruction has left uh, violence and, and harm. So Lord, I just thank you for this and ask for your blessing. In your name we pray, amen. So hey, listen, thank you again for listening to Harvest Talk. And once again, until next time, keep reaching people and building their lives. Take care.